Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. May Gavannon Mellon. May Gavallon. Gavannon. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's 10 seconds in. I've already butchered it. Oh, well. <laughs> Maybe next week. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. You've uh, you've already shown me your newest acquisition behind you, which yeah, the listeners yeah. clearly can see because this is an audio format and visual things work very well. Well, uh, what, what I've got is uh, it won't, won't be appreciated now through, through the podcast, but hopefully soon... We'll be doing YouTube. We're setting up a studio. That's what I'm kind of working on at the moment. And uh, behind me, what Gareth is referencing is I managed to get a glass case, um, glass cabinet with glass shelves in it. Really nice. Yeah, cabinet of curiosities. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to act as kind of a bit of decoration in the studio with some props. I've been testing it out right now. In there, I've a resin disc with uh, lots of little ammonites in it. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, I, I actually do want to shout out who who I got it off of, because they did me a solid on this one. And uh, because they're kind of, in a in a sense, related in a way, because they do um, TV and stuff like that. Uh, and they do their costumes for TV and, and props and stuff. So we're going to have props in there. But they try and do everything that they do. They try and do it sustainably. And they're mm. trying to be sustain, yeah, sustainable TV costumers and 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 that kind of thing. And you can find them at the, the sustainable stylist. I think on Instagram they're actually the underscore sustainable underscore stylish two stylist two. But yeah, it's really cool. So I'm really happy with that. And uh, it was it's gonna look really good once we're uh, once we're recording in the studio for YouTube. Well, other than going and picking up cabinets, have you done anything else of interest this week? Um, yeah, I, I've done a few. I've, I've been bird watching a lot this week, um, cool. especially with those those houseman's I told you about. Uh, mm. They're really active now. It's absolutely lovely. But yeah, I've been I've been bird watching out and about uh, around the place, and I had a bit of an interesting experience today. But uh, yeah. anyone who is listening that knows me, and you most certainly, Gareth, will get a bit of a kick out of this one. Obviously, it's been very hot here, lovely weather here. Uh, it's been fantastic. And I've been out in the shed working on, um, on 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 making that into the studio. But at the same time, I'm having to, you know, get rid of things, make make room for things. So I'm in and out of the house with stuff to take photos of and and put up on like on the marketplace and stuff to to sell. And um, and anyway, I'm I'm in in the in the kitchen, uh, taking my photos, and all of a sudden I hear a, a distinct buzz of something with a sting. <laughs> oh no! I turn around and a little bee in here, very cute. Um, very happy to see him, just not very happy that he's in my house. So uh, I I talk to him for a bit and then say, right, that's a, that's enough of the uh, pleasantries now, buddy. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to shift you on. So uh, he's over by the the window on the on the on the on the other side of the kitchen, and I open the window and I kind of just very gently coax him out with a, a piece of paper. Oh no, it wasn't that the paper was late. It was with a feather. So with a feather, just coaxed him out of the window, closed the window, and then I hit turn around, and at the other window, at the other end, there's a bee coming <laughs> through that window. So I think, all right, 
you know, it's just too, it's coincidence. So I get the feather and I um <laughs> coax him out of, of that window. And then I go about my day and then I hear, uh, there's another two bees in here. And I think, right, I'm going to have to shut that door, shut that window, sorry. So I, I, I shut all the windows, shut the doors, uh, and then open just one window and, and coax him out with a feather. And what? That is a bit strange, but it didn't, the thought didn't go anywhere further. 10 minutes later, I need to go out. So I go out into my garden and on the patio that's immediately outside of the kitchen window, there is a swarm of bees and they've been swarming the house and my neighbor's house. And uh, and yeah, I just walked into a cloud of bees. And when I got nice. through it, to uh, get to the decking above, I look across and my, my neighbor's got a swarm of bees on his on his roof and I like I had a laugh of him about it and then I thought privately to myself thinking thank goodness it's not it's not in my house and I just <laughs> oh boy did I jinx it because my attic right now is full of bees oh get some <laughs> photos of that I'm not going up this ah go on they're I, less I'm likely, to, they're less I'm likely to, to do anything to you when they're in a swarm and they are this in... is true this is true and i don't want to perpetuate any fear of them because no one should have the same fear as me because it's irrational i'm actually i'm not scared of bees i'm scared of wasps but then the buzz just makes me think wasp and i can't really mm. get my head around it when there's that many of them or when i can't see them but i basically i opened the loft hatch because because i noticed um what happened was the buzz got louder so <laughs> i looked across from the shed and i couldn't see them where they were going into my neighbor's loft i couldn't see them so i looked at my loft and there they were cheeky little beggars going in through there so then i came into the house and there were six in the upstairs on the landing and then i opened the hatch and another one threw out and I shut, the, shut the uh thing and one by one getting this glass put like tra trapping it in the glass <laughs> putting paper down taking them out to the to the to the outside Coming back in, grabbing over, I got through all seven of them. And when I came back in, there was an eighth one there. And then I came back in and a ninth one. And this went on for far too long. Just needed to find the queen and then you'd have been fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going up in the loft to look yeah. for the queen. No. Hey, hey. I just going to just open the uh, the loft hatch slightly. Excuse me, uh, Your Majesty. Yeah. I'm really sorry. I, terrible time, I know. Uh, I, I I know you're looking for somewhere to, to go. Please, this is this is my house, and I'm very nervous around you guys. <laughs> if you could just maybe shift a few meters either way. Well, that's one bit of news that I did not expect to hear from you this week. That's a bit of an odd oddity. Um, <laughs> I have nowhere near close to that level of buzz around me. Pun intended. Um, <laughs> I've been mostly busy marking assignments because it's that wonderful time of year again where lecturers are marking grades and frantically making sure that everything's marked. So I've been, uh, been doing that. That's been most of my week, although I have had uh, a good amount of time out in the garden, finally spending time out there. And I've also had a bit of time today to mow the grass but not mow the grass. It oh, is yeah. no, it is no mow may, and I've even made a video to that effect, which should be up by this point if I've managed to uh, to pull my finger out, as it were, um, and edit it and get it all out there. 
Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's uh, it's basically a, a video of me mowing the grass, but doing it in a way that keeps a good proportion of the garden, you know, for for wildlife. Uh, and it shows because I was I was looking at the grass um, later on this afternoon. The sun had been on it. It's, it's been nice and damp first thing this morning. And there was loads of flying insects uh, in amongst the grass. Some of it's starting to go to seed already. We've got a couple of flowers coming through. I'm even going to dump some wildflower seed on it and really go go whole hog with the whole um, wildflower meadow look because it's yeah it's looking really good out there at the moment let's uh <laughs> before the bees come and get you Aaron um let's uh, crack on with the news shall we and uh see what the buzz is there I've no I've I, they won't come and get me I've made friends with them but ah. we're like we've got we're like in a distanced relationship <laughs> we're like pen pals but rather than writing to each other they buzz and I just shout things up to them <laughs> you're right up there Fair enough. It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news. Uh, and first off, we've got the newsreel. Aaron, what have we got going on? Well, as regular cupboard dwellers will know, here in the Natural History Cover, we like to keep you all updated on the big news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. But we don't always have time to get through them all. So let's jump into that natural history covered newsreel and uh, bring you all up to speed. Mm. Um, firstly, we're going to kick things off with extraterrestrial natural history. Am I going to end up reading this, Aaron, and it's going to turn out to be something uh, rude like last week? <laughs> no, no, this is really cool news. Okay, if I see a mention of Uranus in this, I'm going to be annoyed. Um, <laughs> so uh, as we learn this week about Saturn specifically, Saturn's rings are really young. A new study published by physicists at the University of Colorado uh, have published the Science Advances Journal that Saturn's rings are no more than a mere 400 million years old, meaning they formed around Saturn around the same time that sharks did uh, in the sea, uh, on Earth, obviously. And that article can be found at phys.org online. So, yeah, mere spring chickens, those, uh, those rings. I think that people don't understand deep time very well, so I really think that that comparison that no, Saturn it's a good, was forming it's a good one. In fact, by the time Saturn's rings were forming, sharks were already 50 million years old. Mm. That's incredible to think about. But yeah, sticking with our superbly ringed celestial neighbour, uh, researchers have discovered a pretty impressive leap in Saturn's moon collection. So Life Science Online brings us the article, which reports on a team of researchers from the University of British Columbia who have detected a further 62 moons orbiting the planet. The findings hint towards an extremely chaotic past for the planet and also knocks Jupiter off of its uh, throne as it was raining as the uh, planet with the largest moon collection. God, greedy. Dropping out of orbit and back down to Earth now, where Sir Quinton Blake hopes to inspire with drawings at Slimbridge. Uh, BBC Online brings us the news that the artist, who of course is renowned for illustrating Roald Dahl's children's books, uh, is loaning his wetland-themed works to a project run by the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust uh, for an exhibition at the Slimbridge, Slimbridge Wetland Centre in Stroud, the UK, obviously. Uh, next up, a truly gigantic Jurassic sea monster's remains discovered by chance in the museum. Uh, and again, this is live science 
And um, it's basically the news that a British museum has identified a new species of pliosaur from four bones that were being stored in the drawers of the Abingdon County Hall Museum. The fossils were discovered uh, from Kimmeridge clay formation and suggest that the animal could have reached sizes up to 47 foot. To put that in perspective, I think they said it was roughly the size of two killer whales. That is correct. Yeah, which is that's a, <laughs> still not the biggest thing that was swimming the seas at that point. No. Uh, and sticking with our marine friends, Life Sciences reports on a weird demon shark with bright eyes uh, that have been discovered off Australia. Uh, this is the news that a new species of deep sea dwelling shark has been identified in Western Australia. Uh, the new species has been named Aspiratus ovicorrigatus, meaning corrugated egg case. That's it, yeah. It's because the egg cases. Have a look on the on have a look on it online. Um, the egg cases. If you imagine the mermaid's standard mermaid's purse, uh, but the, it does look corrugated. It looks like crinkle cut crisps. Um, <laughs> they should McCoy's. call it the crinkle cut crisp shark. <laughs> uh, and finally, from Fizzorg online, Belgium learns to share its beaches with sleepy seals. Uh, as you'll no doubt remember, whilst COVID meant a lack of travel and adventure for us humans, it did mean that other species had a chance to expand their territories somewhat, uh, either claiming new ground or just recolonization. So recolonizing their his historic range. For grey seals and harbour seals, this meant hauling out on the sandy beaches of Belgium, uh, which during the height of the pandemic seemed like a calm and chill place to hang out. Now, Belgian animal protection groups are working tirelessly to educate the public in human seal coexistence to ensure that all three species can enjoy their Neptune-given right to frequent the beaches. This news story certainly gets my seal of approval, and I, for one, hope oh. that all parties have an absolute <laughs> whale of a time this summer. And uh, that will do it for this puns week's Natural all. History news. Real, full of puns. Uh, guys, if you want your uh, news stories uh, that you've seen and are interested in and you want us to cover them, uh, send them on in and uh, you just might have your chosen topic or news article covered here or in our main topics and as I said last week I'm really sorry uh, I'm still catching up on some of them so please do keep sending them in they will get mentioned uh, but with that said uh, we'll head on into the news so Gareth take it away yes well just briefly back on that uh, last article there um, I was actually going to cover this the other week where they were talking about was it Freya the walrus in Denmark where they ended yeah. up having to uh, to kill her um, because she oh, was seen as a yeah seen as a a threat but people were basically getting far too close to her um, and oh. you know I don't often praise the UK for its uh, ability to coexist with with animals but I must admit we had Wally and we had Thor and they even cancelled a fireworks display for that walrus to make sure that he stayed nice and calm. So we clearly are a little bit better with large marine mammals that have tusks than Denmark or, you know, the, those particular people around that area of Denmark. That's a real shame. It's again, a minority of people. Yeah, being really everybody. stupid and the animal oh. paying for it. So, so it's sad. it's a sad thing to see. If anything, I hope it just raises the awareness that people you know, get of these animals and realize that you can't act like that around them because the animal will suffer, mm. um, not you, the animal. Anyway, on brighter, no uh, brighter news and something that ties in nicely with uh, our episode from the eye, 
the river otter, uh, Devon waterway that shows beavers are the cheapest solution to restoring UK rivers. A cheap solution to tackle the scourge of Britain's polluted and degraded rivers. It sounds too good to be true. But some say the answer lies in beavers, a nifty rodent with a reputation for transforming their local landscape into thriving wetlands that boost the healthy waterways without charging a penny. Uh, reintroductions of the once extinct beaver uh, is not the silver bullet for restoring all rivers, uh, but it does seem uh, that it will help. Uh, the experts are confident that it is certainly part of the remedy, and they're calling on the government to speed up producing a plan for wild beaver releases into so many rivers that can start to reap the rewards, uh, which is definitely something that needs to happen in a lot more rivers up and down the country. Uh, beavers are really important uh, and act as an ecological tool. And the biggest thing is they are essentially free. They don't cost millions of pounds to put beavers in. You need the right sort of landowner and understanding peoples, uh, says Dr. Alan Law, an expert in freshwater environments at the University of Stirling. Uh, we need to use every possible tool that we have and not everything's going to be a winner in every single place but we do need something because the rivers aren't getting any better. They're getting worse. And actually we're standing back when the solution is right there in front of us. Uh, his colleague, Professor Nigel Willoughby, who also specializes in freshwater sciences said, having spent centuries dwindling rivers, straightening and deepening them, isolating their floodplains, removing dead wood, stripping bank sides, and other words, erasing everything that makes a healthy and biodiverse river, we have now got an agent back on the scene that reverses the uh, reverse engineers these impacts for free. A beaver's innate engineering skills mean that they can build networks of dams around small and shallow rivers while shielding uh, them from predators. The dams also turn the landscape into a dynamic wetland. Professor Willoughby said as well, beavers boost the com uh, complexity of a river, basically transforming the habitats tremendously, benefiting a huge range of uh, species, increasing the biodiversity for water plants, invertebrates, uh, to birds, bats, and fish. Beavers have long been used for stream and floodplain restoration in North America, but are increasingly now being put to use in Europe for their dam building, canal digging, and wetland creation activities. Building dams slowly spreads and stores water in the landscape, turning it into sort of a sponge uh, that improves flood and drought resilience. Uh, as opposed to just letting the water rush through a thin column and not soak away anywhere. Mm. Um, dams also act like sieves to filter out sediment, uh, agricultural runoff from rivers, and improving overall water quality. It's a really poignant thing. Two reasons. We haven't actually mentioned in our intro uh, introduction uh, who our guest for this episode is going to be. Should we uh, mention that now, Aaron? I think now is a very good time to reveal it. Yeah, we have the fantastic Derek Gow, uh, who has been instrumental in rewilding areas of Britain. Uh, but the other part of that that makes a lot of sense is literally this week we had, well, a flash flooding in Devon, uh, where we had torrential rain for the best part of the day. And it caused whole areas to be completely washed out. You know, it, it basically stopped traffic down here for, for the best part of a day. Roads were flooded. Houses were flooded. All of a sudden, quick flooding, excessive all over the land. You know, lots of places got uh, really badly flooded very, very quickly. If you have the land set up so that you have floodplains, 
and areas where it can soak into, you don't have as much of an issue. But when you compress down the water into thin rivers where there's no banks or uh, drainage areas, well, then you're going to end up with things like this where it overflows very quickly and goes into uh, human inhabited areas where you've got concrete and then the water has nowhere to soak away to. So it shows the importance of these animals. And so the river otter is a fantastic example of that. They're just, uh, wherever the beavers are, there's no denying it, no arguing it. It just, it, it just looks healthier. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. One of these days, I will see a beaver down there. I will see one. <laughs> right, moving on from my article. Um, let's go to yours, Aaron. Yeah, mine's a short one because I I kind of want to get on with this uh, this interview. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but it comes to us via the BBC Online, uh, and it details the new efforts in the new forest to preserve the the the, the pony bloodlines. Uh, so, eighteen stallions will be released into the wilds of the area in um, in Hampshire between May and July. So, this is happening very much as we speak, uh, and this release is timed to coincide with the annual breeding season. Now, the stallions um, that are turned out each year are approved, in inverted commas, basically to keep the new forest pony bloodlines legit as a breed by controlling the number of foal births in a year and uh, ensuring the quality of the stock. To be approved, these stallions are examined by five judges who consider the animal's confirmation, its type, movement and genetic lineage. Um, so they're thoroughly kind of checked out before they're, before they're sent out on, on their mission. The news comes not so long after plans of £1,000 fines for pony pestering, which were put in place earlier this year. Despite these fines, it is commonly understood that people don't do as they're told. So in addition, uh, guidance is being given on where to walk and how to behave with your dogs, i.e. don't let them off the lead, don't be selfish. As well as this, they're given warnings regarding the erratic and unpredictable behaviour of the breed itself, particularly its stallions, uh, which makes them very dangerous to uh, get too close to. So a really short article, as I say, but one worth mentioning for those of you who do like to uh, enjoy viewing animals from a respectful distance. And maybe you can go out and catch a uh, glimpse of them. They are a really beautiful horse breed. And I, I got quite a fond memory of camping as a, as a kid with my family in the New Forest and waking up to a pony or two in very close uh, proximity to our tents. They're very cool animals indeed. Hmm. I've never actually been to the New Forest. It's it's one of those places I've always fancied going, especially now because they, if I remember correctly, they've got pine martens there yeah, now. Have, I think, so yeah. that would probably be some of the closest ones to us, short of us going to Wales. But yeah, uh, the same sort of thought should be with the Dartmoor ponies, the Exmoor yeah. ponies, any sort of area. In fact, any area where there's even livestock, don't let your dogs off a lead because that's a good way to get them, well, attacked by cattle or horses or even shot by farmers um, because you may not be aware of this and it's maybe a bit of a shock to uh, our international listeners but believe it or not farmers can actually legally shoot your dog if it's considered yeah. uh, pestering livestock which does happen occasionally I'm going to say something that's really controversial, uh, and I don't care. You? Uh, controversial? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pe people can get angry with me about this, but the science, there is science behind it. It's backed up by science, um, and it's, it's, it's the truth. Uh, I say this as a dog trainer, um, and I'm sure there's going to be dog owners that disagree with me. I respectfully don't care. 
off-leash freedom isn't necessary for a healthy dog mentally and physically. You don't need to give your dog off-leash freedom. So I, I respect you if you want to. And in fact, if I had a dog, I would like to give it off-leash freedom. But the key thing is to decide when you do it. Don't be selfish. Don't don't be thinking, and don't also don't be guilt tripped into into doing it by the, the thought in the back of your head that your dog really enjoys it and wants it. You you are the one that defines when they get that freedom if they're going to get it, and only you can make that decision for the, for them. And so you are responsible when your dog attacks a sheep or when your sheep gets shot. Sorry, your sheep. Sorry, when your <laughs> dog gets shot by a farmer or run over by a car. So. Yeah, like re- really put some thought into when you're going to let your dog off the lead. Uh, don't be silly. Hmm. I don't think that was overly controversial, but we've certainly well, gone it, on. The- it, it, I think it is. People, people, people like to think that uh, that their dog should be off leash all the time. Sometimes I feel I, I saw someone the other day. No, no, no joke. Someone the other day walking down a very, very busy road, and I'm not talking about like a road, you know, like in in Barnstable, for example, but. Though I still think you should have a, a leash on your dog walking uh, along a road and bus where there's still cars and you don't know what's yeah. going to set your dog off. But this was a really busy road and no leash. I, I respect that you think that you've got control over that dog, but you have no idea if there is something coming that is going to trigger that dog to run out in that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've certainly taken a bit of an odd turn yeah, there with, uh, with <laughs> what we're talking about, but... Let's head on in to our interview where, like I say, uh, we are going to be talking to the fantastic and very passionate Derek Gow. It's time for the interview room. Okay, right. Well, we're into this week's uh, interview um, and it is my pleasure uh, to welcome Derek Gow uh, into the podcast. Uh, Derek (laughs) Uh, you are or you're the owner of Derek Gow Consultancies, uh, dealing with rewilding and specialising in waterfowl conservation, uh, an animal that is uh, intrinsically linked to another rodent that we'll discuss uh, later on. Uh, uh, he's a passionate advocate uh, for returning the UK to its natural state as much as possible. Uh, you've authored several books, including Bringing Back the Beaver and Birds, Beasts and Bedlam. Um, Derek, welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Uh, and uh, how are you? Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm absolutely fine. I'm enjoying the better weather, which is very pleasant after last week. It seems that late spring has returned. So, um, <laughs> yeah, the flowers butterflies, so all good. Mm. Hmm. Aaron, I believe you've got our, our first question. So uh... I, I have, but before, before I ask, I just want to put a disclaimer to everyone listening that I shared the, I shared what we're doing this evening out to out wider than I usually would have kind of as a sort of experiment. Uh, so we've got some questions from our listeners and some questions are from the general public. So this right. means there'll be a little bit of input from different points of view. Uh, also, <laughs> I, uh, I compiled these questions. So if anyone of our listeners thinks I've missed their question off, you'll have to at me and not not Gareth or Drew. It's not their fault, it's mine. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think I've included everyone. So I'll I'll kick things off as Gareth says. Uh, so Derek, you've um, you've actually been in our crosshairs to interview for probably the majority of this podcast's uh, existence, um, it, which has been quite a short lifetime, really. 
but uh, <laughs> you're someone who speaks very passionately, uh, but you stand above the rest in that you actually act with as much fervor uh, to get things done. Um, and we'd just like to give you a moment to tell us a bit about yourself and, and what drives your efforts. Okay. Um, well, I, I about, about myself, I was, I mean, I started my career in agriculture. I was always terribly interested in the conservation of rare breeds of domestic mm -hmm. livestock, the old cultural varieties of cattle and sheep and pigs um, that, that, that have been associated with this island some since, since the Bronze Age and beyond. And um, I guess, I mean, originally I was inspired by Gerald Durrell's books. When I was very little, I, I read his books with great av uh, avidity. And um, I never thought I'd get to the stage where, you know, I, I was actually able to play a role in, in captive breeding a range of different endangered species or in doing some of the things that I, I've subsequently been able to do. So that was my background. It's very simple. In about um, 1990, I was asked to, to, to work in a country park in Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, to um, as a, a countryside ranger for a season and then um, when the person who ran what at that time was a fairly small grim zoo um, retired I was asked to take over the running of that oh, and nice. I did not at all an absurdity of a thing and I could see no point <laughs> and then boss at the time sent me to the um, summer school in Jersey um, at Jersey Zoo that, that was founded by Darrell and uh, I met people from all over the world working with the broadest array of threatened species. Um, I had some excellent course lecturers, and it really was a bit of a kind of seminal moment because, I mean, they made it very clear that all was not well on this island. And um, at that point in time, my interest in captive breeding and reintroducing native British species where this possibly could be accomplished um, started to develop. Uh, and I've worked with a very broad range of species like water voles and beavers and harvest mice and glowworms and white storks and, uh, and and hopefully just shortly wildcats to, to restore them to, 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 to large areas of the former range. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Um, is there a particular species, and, and from that list there, you've, you've already mentioned quite a few different uh, native species, um, that particularly you would, you would long to see return to the UK um, or even just in a particular area? At scale, the most obvious candidate for widespread, vigorous restoration is the Eurasian beaver. Because beavers, you know, for way too long, we thought about species reintroductions as being exercises in nostalgia, whereby you just try to ensure that there are a few, you know, squirrel nutkins running around parts of lowland Britain, or or ratty can still skull on the windrush with his pal the mole, um, and and the toad smoking his pipe and wearing his fore and aft hat for for. <laughs> our lifetime and of course that's an absurdity these creatures are 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 things that are part of a living world or a living world that should exist around us but a living world that's falling away fast i mean i don't know if you guys noted the study um that was publicized in the guardian this morning which suggests over the last quarter century we've lost 550 million birds from the air you know the insects wow. are going going the fish are going we're living in a time of terrible danger. And, and the reason why you'd reintroduce beavers everywhere as fast as you can, you know, and just ignore the, the idiots who bitch about it is because they are the bringers of life. As soon as you heal old water on the surface of the earth and you open that water to sunlight, and the ducks return, the amphibians mm -hmm. return, the flies return, the frogs return, and all these things can come back in great plenty. 
And and if we really are serious about restoring wildlife on this island and, you know, your tedious politicians like, who is that woman? Teresa Coffey standing oh, up, tedious, uh... you know, telling you that by 20, <laughs> 2040 will have stabilized the loss of nature and it will be you know and, and, and greatly improve whatever the bollocks they come up with if we're serious about really about making a difference and the time we have on this earth we must restore this animal so that is top priority after that other things are parts of the jigsaw that you can rework in but if you restore that animal it sets the scene for the return of all, all other sorts of life yeah we um Fantastic. We, of, we often talk about keystone species on our podcast, things like uh, the wolf in Europe and and, uh, and America, and in, in my opinion, should be here. Um, but uh, <laughs> the beaver, I believe, goes a little bit above and beyond the role of, of a keystone species. It, it really is an engineer. Um, but on the subject of beaver, since you, that was the, the one that you picked, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, bringing back the beaver? Because it's a book that I myself have been wanting to dive into for for uh, for a while now, and I'm sure there's some characters, uh, both beaver and human, who might stand out in your mind. Yeah, I mean, well, bringing back. I mean, just finish what you said about the beaver before I uh, say anything much more about the book. Sure. Beavers are not keystone species. The best of the North American scientists will tell you they they, they are much more than that. Mm -hmm. They are a force of nature like the wind, like fire, you know, they, 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 uh, they have a more significant role than we can ever begin to imagine. They, their, their, their activities and their legacy as far as the landscape's concerned goes way beyond um, the, you know, the impact of any one simple species. So next to, to people and elephants, they're reckoned to be the third most impactful species on the planet are terribly important. So bringing back the beaver, what was bringing back the beaver? Well, I've worked with the species since the mid-1990s. I went out to see one of the, um, I mean, I can't remember exactly when my, my interest in them arose, but it was very closely allied with, with the fact that as we sought to stabilise prospects for the water bowl and create wetlands for them, open sunny pool systems, cut mm -hmm. the trees, down, you know, just just try and create complexity in a landscape that had been hugely homogenized by human activity to the point of, of the rivers being either dark corridors over covered by trees or straight canalized drains. You know, we've removed the wetlands, removed the farm ponds, removed the water meadows, just given this little creature, this tiny animal, less chance after less chance after less chance. Mm. And as we to, to, to replicate the habitats that they, they needed mechanically and artificially, at some stage, somebody must have said to me, you need to go and see what beavers do. And I kind of think it might have been um, um, the old forester, um, uh, one of the old foresters in Windsor, but it doesn't really matter. The, the long and the short of it was that um, I went out to Poland in 1994 or 95. I was lucky enough to go to one of the old state breeding farms that was set up in the time of Stalin to provide beavers for reintroduction and to re reintroductions to remote areas of the Soviet Union to um, to restart the fur trade. And there I met the most you know wonderful people who were caring for you know quite a large captive group of, of beaver families, producing kits year on year to 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 provide. Um, you know, for, for, for areas where there were no beavers, where no beavers remained because they'd been killed in the Middle Ages for their castorium or their fur. 
And, um, and my journey with the Beaver really began then. And I remember it very clearly because I went into the, the, the holding facilities where they had them, which is like this gigantic air raid shelter with the sound of water crashing in from the Missourian lakes through a, an antiquated series of rusting pipes into these great dark tanks um, that sat in, in, in the, the building's floor. And as we walked along the sides of these, with these kind of little concrete walls that were kind of like pigsties, you know, he leaned over and, and beneath us there was this, this a couple of concrete paving slabs on top of a small chamber. And he took one of the paving slabs off and there underneath is this tame family of Eurasian beavers all fast asleep. And there's a, a mummy one and baby ones curled up round her and two-year-olds and three-year-olds and a gigantic male. And at that time, I didn't realise that in Eastern Europe, about a third of the population of the beavers are, are black. They're a, well, they're not really black. They're kind of dark Bourneville chocolate um, brown. Mel melanistic. Animals before. And he leant down into the chamber and brought out this 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 female who was just beginning to come awake. And he just turned around and handed me, <laughs> handed her to me. And thank goodness, <laughs> a pleasant natured creature. But I mean, beavers are. I mean, they're by and large fairly benign, but I mean, he put me, you know, put her in my arms, and she just sat and looked at me, and 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 beavers, unsurprisingly, smell very beavery. It's like a kind of camphor type smell, and I can remember no, you know, just burying my face in her fur and just breathing in the scent and thinking, "You're a marvelous creature." So, um, so the journey really with them began then, and it's like every journey. I mean, what, what you find when it comes to projects like this is that very commonly the people who 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 begin never record what they, they think or saw. So, I mean, there was an effort to um, to reintroduce beavers to Grisdale Forest in the Lake District in the 1970s, 1980s. And all the people involved with that were dead And by the time I started. And none of them ever thought to sit down and write about why they, they tried to do what they, they, they were going to try to do you know, what had happened, what had gone wrong, why they'd been frustrated, why a perfectly sensible project had come to an end. And my inspiration, therefore, to write Bringing Back the Beaver, it was really kind of prodded into it by Isabella Tree, who um, said that over the time I'd spent with him, that I really should start writing up some of the stories about the sad things that happened and the happy things that happened and the triumphs and the failures and the people who behaved very well and the people who behaved very, very badly. And and make clear that, that this is the, the way the journey had gone, because we're at an impasse again now, whereby we've a Secretary of State, of State and Teresa Coffey, who's, who will do nothing about this. She has ground my gears for a little while now, she has. She's <laughs> a, a truly appalling person who is, mm. who is committed to, to ensuring that this species does not return to Britain. And in our time of office, nothing much will happen. So beyond that, we will be faced with a whole process that becomes incredibly bureaucratic and makes restoration potentially seem possible, while at the time making it so difficult to actually do it that you can't achieve anything. But mm. in the end, you know, slowly, steadily, you know, they're, they're returning to river systems and people are not, it's not clear how they're, how they're, 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 they're able to do this. But, but there are a number of river systems now where there are free-living beavers, and every year their numbers rise, and every year there are more river systems with beavers in them. And, and you know, I think that, that there's a great natural inevitability to this. Um, so I'm quite confident that there's that they are here to stay, 
that they will forever expand, that we could make a better job of this and do it much faster. But 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 that the you know we just seem unless until we get to a stage where you actually have politicians who have an interest in nature and an interest in its restoration and that, that interest is deep, meaningful, and sincere, then mm. we will be able to do very little. Mm. Very true. Could I just yeah. before before you continue, Gav, could I just jump yeah, yeah. off on something you said right at the beginning about um how the impact of of beavers in the environment um. Do you have like do you, you don't happen to have like the statistic for um, as beavers are introduced and they settle uh, uh, and they begin to colonize the rate at which um, insects, birds, uh, and other smaller animals start to return and and life starts to come back to to the it's, it's slow slow to begin with, but uh, and and also everything the beavers do is transitory in time. When they initially mm -hmm. impact and the trees start to die and, and, and you're walking through dark conifer forests with the sound of the water birds ringing in your ears, that phase is only part of what then eventually happens. The, the, the area will open to sunlight, the aquatic plants will return. Um, you know, in time, the beavers will expand their, 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 their dams off to either side, wherever the land is flat enough to allow them to do so. But also in time, what you find is that when you impound water of any sort is that inevitably, and this is, of course, exacerbated in extreme landscapes by the way we use the land, these impoundments will fill with silt. And at some mm -hmm. stage, um, the, um, the beavers will be unable to, 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 to scoop out the channels that they need underwater to move through safely. And they will become meadows and grass over again and the dams will decay and the beavers will either die or will move to other locations. So you've got to understand that, that this process is complicated, but that mm. this number of species that initially come in rise very rapidly. And with every succeeding phase of, of, of the life cycle of a beaver-generated environment, different creatures come in to use it and different creatures um, you know, expand rapidly in numbers. So in a mature beaver-generated environment, you potentially could have an 80% greater density of insect species. And, and that, that applies not just across the breadth of the species, but also to their biomass. And it's biomass that we are so critically missing from, mm -hmm. from our, our natural environments. You know, there may be some frogs, there may be some toads, but to give you an example, I mean, I did a survey for a... a, a at a state in Wales, I think it was either last year or the spring of the year before. And because still water is a relatively unusual environment now, because we've canalised everything, so the water flows, the water flows, the water flows. Yeah. It's, you know, having spent four days wandering around the estate, I found one dirty, filthy puddle at the outflow of the old farm dump with diesel floating on the surface. Oh, and, no. and that would have found any frog spawn at all. Mm. Whereas these amphibians, they are a building block of life. If you don't have the little things at the bottom, the insects, the amphibians and the fish, then everything else that starts to stack up on these, it just can't be. So the more water you have sitting, the greater the number of amphibians, the greater number of the amphibians, the greater number other there are of, of, of fish and insects and birds and so on. So I can't get a statistic with regard to how quickly they grow it's slow but then it starts to accelerate accelerate away very rapidly and what we know now is that not only are water voles as a species you know completely interlinked to, you know and uh, to the habitat the beavers create and they, they need these open sunny complex environments 
But the, the things like, you know, little grebes, uh, you know, wild cats, wolves, you name it, everything lives in the wetlands because the wetlands are where um, the richest living environment is and where the greatest store of food and complexity exists. Brilliant. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it just it, it paints that whole ecological picture. Um, our next couple of questions that we've got have come in via uh, our social media channels. Um, the first is from our, one of our listeners, Abigail Taylor, uh, and she asks. So it, this one's a bit of a, an interesting one but out of left field. Uh, and I'm not sure this falls into the area of any of our expertise, but she writes, uh, I've learned somewhere that people may have used beaver hair for merkins. <laughs> is there any truth to that? And why would they use beaver or other small animals? Well, they, there it. you go, Jerk. <laughs> Use it for what? I didn't get that word in the middle. A merkin. What is a merkin? It's a... Uh... Come on, Aaron, you've now got to explain this. It's a... <laughs> yeah, thank you uh, to our listeners. It's a pubic wig. No. no I never heard any reference to that. I mean, the, you know, I, I think that's just a silly question. I can't think mm. of... I can't think of any reference to that at all. And I don't think that's where it comes from. The term beaver for, you know, women's pubic hair comes, it's, it's a North American Canadian derivative. I'm not even sure what, sure what why or how that, 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 that arose, but certainly there's no medieval evidence of anything like this. No, don't but think that so. Didn't, that didn't even occur to me as to why that was no, the, it, the question that was in it there. It took me... <laughs> There you go. We all learned. So the second question, slightly more sensible, this one, mm -hmm. um, is from uh, Paula Roddy, uh, who commented, uh, "I would like to know the range of, of territory. Uh, sorry, the range of territory that is needed by a beaver, and how they managed during the drought, uh, and how to ensure a rewilding project like uh, like beaver reintroductions um, gets a good start off to establish." Right, so the territory is as big or as small as the quality of the habitat. So if you've got them in reed beds with abundant willow in the early years of territorial use, you might be looking at something that's a few hundred metres. If the habitat quality is poor and they're in an intensive agricultural environment, then the territory might be 15 kilometres. So the territorial size varies with in direct response to the quality of the habitat. Um, how do you ensure that beaver reintroductions start well? You have lots of beavers to begin with, and those beavers are genetically variable, and you release them in, in the right locations and the right numbers. You don't do what we've done in Britain, which is pick landscapes that are politically um, 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 acceptable or landscapes where you you know people just release them at random you know, into environments where conflicts can swiftly arise, mm. even it comes to that 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 last statement that's entirely understandable because of course if you frustrate a perfectly reasonable idea for long enough then sooner or later people take it into their own hands to act regardless of the stupid laws that are in place at the time because we make the stupid laws and the stupid laws are there to to suit a band of people who want to see no progress so yeah. you have to look at that and decide in your own lifetime whether you're going to go along with something that is essentially just a contrivance of that sort, or whether you're going to say no. History, you know, shows us quite graphically 
that the change always comes because of stupid laws. And I think that's what we're seeing now with regard to beavers. Um, what was the third part of that question? Um, and uh, how did they how did they go uh, during the drought that we had? How did they manage? How, how during... they managed? Well, it was yeah. how the they managed during droughts. Oh right, right. sorry. Yeah. So there, I, I'm not sure that there are any beavers at this point in time that have been impacted by the drought directly that we had last year. Mm -hmm. Animals, if they live in environments where they have inflows into river systems or, or inflows into the big water bodies they're living on, they can, because they make a variety of different dam shapes, the ones that are in flatland, which are shallow and long, will rapidly or can rapidly empty in times of drought. But the landscape around beaver-generated impoundments also changes substantially because the animals, um, because they hold water, the groundwater table rises, and the plants that, that live alongside the beavers also change very greatly. So you have, in the end, a preponderance of sphagnum mosses, which can absorb 60 times their own volume of water. So what you find, and this is a very well-studied phenomenon, is that in very arid landscapes such as southern North America, that the beaver-generated landscapes where they, they, they tinge the desert, um, where there is water available to them that they can impound, they turn everything around them green. And, and though the desert may come right up to the edge of that greenness, while the beavers endure in a given environment, that environment can be lush and fertile. And that's because the structures they create and the complexity of the structures retain groundwater. When, so under those circumstances, they can break droughts and give creatures that would otherwise be utterly unable to survive the opportunity to do so. And that's what happened on our farm last year, where the beaver dams and the medieval ditch systems, even though the water was turbid and sometimes a bit smelly, it provided the only water there was for, for dragonflies, for a variety of, of wild animals like deer and and you know and 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 the wild pigs we have and and the otters to, to you know to, to to use as a resource either for drinking or in the case of the otters for fishing. So so the mm -hmm. beaver are kind of like they're kind of like elephants again in that respect that when and that when drought comes they are actually able to hold water and sometimes even excavate down to the bottom of water courses to provide water for a range of other creatures that simply can't survive without it. Amazing animals. That's, I mean just more and more showing the the literal importance of these animals why, mm. why they're not seen as gods i have no idea um so we know that one species uh, you seem particularly passionate about is uh, the european tree frog as well um for our listeners uh, derek um you you have about six of them uh, on your farm um can you tell us uh, about their importance in the ecosystem and maybe why people uh, seem to resist the call to have um, this species back in our countryside Okay, uh, well, the ones we've got have come through winter well. We have some Dutch ones here. Um, they are out, they're moving about, they're feeding, they're looking quite as chirpy as a green tree frog can do. Um, they, um, uh, so we're hoping in time they will settle and breed. Um, what, what is their importance to the ecosystem? Well, they're another amphibian that if they were living in reconstructed wetlands in Britain, would use a different ecotope to the things like the common frogs and and and, and the pool frogs, which we are firmly, um, uh, which we firmly believe are native, um, and they would um, they would pro just pro provide more food. But 
the other reason why you know I've I've you know I wrote about them in my book Birds Beast and Medlam is that when it comes to we don't know that much about what was here. We know that um, you know uh, you know there were wolves. We we you know we believe there were bears. Though actually finding the DNA of a bear or any bear that's British is a jolly th- a difficult thing to do. And when we just blithely assume that that something wasn't here on the basis that we believe in the 20th century there was no evidence for that, then we're making a huge cultural mistake, I think. When you look back at what records there are, I mean, in the 1500s, some of the early um, physics are grinding tree frogs up with mortars and pestles to produce all sorts of different, you know, concoctions that are going to control, you know, are going to you know, assist conditions like gout or whatever else. And mm. so when you look at the beginning of our understanding, which, you know, when it comes to little things, is pitifully poor, you have people talking about the little green frogs. And then increasingly in modern times, people say, well, that's not true. I mean, they were never here. There's no evidence. There's no bones. It's like the white store stuff. There are, there are no eggs. It's all grainy. But you have to bear in mind that we have literally flayed natural life from this land. By the time mm. you look at the size of a wildcat or a pine marten, and you think, well, we've killed them all. I mean, other than a tiny relic population in the northwest of Scotland, which had the First World War not come when it did, would almost certainly have been eliminated by the gamekeepers of the day. These little animals, we know we're everywhere. We know from medieval records that they were abundant in, in places like Essex or, you know, Heartland Peninsula and Devon or whatever else. If these wee things, you know, these small to medium things, which we know were here, we were able to destroy those, then the smaller things still really just didn't have a chance. So mm-hmm. I think we should, we, none of us can time travel. None of us can go back 500 years or 400 years and say with any kind of definite certainty that something was here or wasn't. And, and when it comes to a time of extinction crisis and, and global warming, you know, if we are serious about restoring landscapes where nature can live, why should we not be serious about restoring the broad guild of species that we, that we know were lost to those landscapes, so things like agile frogs and moor frogs? And does it really matter if there are tree frogs there as well. You know, in the scheme of it, it's a tiny thing. It's going to be eaten by blackbirds and a variety of other uh, other, other, other predators. I, I, I think there's a perfectly good case for examining creatures like this as well. And then, then acting fast, because our problem is that we examine an issue, we turn it over. It's like, I don't know, it's like a an abscessed tooth. We stick our tongue in and out of the hole to see how much it hurts. And, and then we just keep on mm-hmm. doing long as we possibly can when really what we should do is just bloody sort it and move on i yeah that that could not be further no more 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 nail on the head <laughs> um we have uh, another question here for you from uh, love day miller um aaron you've got that one yeah i have um now i wanted to include these because um there's a there's a follow-up to this this uh this comment as well yeah, but it represents kind of um, the portion of of British society that is quite concerned and and I would say quite fearful of of wildlife uh, in general, but in particular when you start talking about things that are bigger than uh, small birds. So um, with that in mind, I thought that 
someone with your expertise would be able to kind of speak to that and um and perhaps uh put some some of these concerns to rest so Lovely miller says uh be careful our beautiful countryside is as it is is as it is because it has been managed for generations by countrymen uh beavers and pine martins have no natural predators and will need to be controlled beavers can prevent flooding but they can cause it as well. Pole, she says polecats, but she meant she meant pine martins, and I, I misread. So pine martins should help to get rid of the grey squirrel, but they are vicious little animals who kill small mammals, etc., for fun. Uh, as for rewilding, do we really want the countryside to return to a jungle? Uh, so I'll let you speak to that, and then I will bring up the follow-up. Right, okay. Yeah, this... So this caused me quite a bit of heat, actually. You know, they, these questions crop up all the time. To answer mm. politely, beavers are the generator of life. If you are able, if you're capable of reading, then then basically you look at the breadth of scientific work and research that's been done on this species, and what it demonstrates throughout their wide world range is that every guild of life builds on the back of that animal's activities. And then if you're, 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 you know, again, you're capable of serious study, what you do is you look at every indice of life that is in the landscape that surrounds us, and it shows you that it's plummeting. Now, this yeah. week, I had conversations which really starkly ran that home. One was with a colleague of mine who is working on the River Wye to, um, to um, tag, to, to radio tag, um, salmon spots to get some idea of you know how they're turning what numbers that that kind of thing and and he was telling me that they had a decent tranche of funding for it they were enough to do 200 smolts and they've caught 13 in the season that they were they, they were unable to uh, they were able to work in to catch the fish and tag them and he mm. said we after night after night the fish aren't there and then another colleague was working on a micromoth um, survey over on the edge of, 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 of some arable land um, in Cambridge um, the week before last. And, I mean, he was telling – and so micromoth is it's this wee thing that if you touch, it's like powdered dust. You cannot pick them up with your fingers. And, um, and he said that in a week trapping there, they didn't catch a single one. What you're looking at is, is, is a truly – apocalyptic environment whereas this neat tidy sterilized pesticide-laden countryside you know with the ivermectins that come from the cattle the dogs every creature that we have stewardship over that walks pour out of their arses into the landscape and and daily do with a destructive ability to survive which is is beyond our comprehension every hedge we rip out every one of the last you know and there are very few of the old grasslands everything that we plow it, it just delivers death in more spades this idea that we've got some sort of nature halcyon um I don't know, a, a Shangri-La in the sky full of flowers and birds on the back of what we've done to this land is utter nonsense. We're 11th from the end of, 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 of a study that WWF undertook with regard to bio, biodiversity, richness in an environment. We are, we, you know, short of being Antarctica, it's hard to see how it gets any worse. Uh, so I welcome 
visits from my friends in Bavaria and Oregon and, and, and other parts of the world now to Britain on the basis that you come here and we'll show you what Endgame looks like. Oh, the big carnivores gone, the big ungulates gone, the medium-sized predators either gone or preserved by the morons that wish to hunt them in comedy costumes, parping their silly horns with daft hats on at a time when it suits them. You know, this idea that, that, that uh, it's just wrong. What? Uh, and, you know, not only wrong, it's, it's, it's a possible... You know, I've just finished a book on the history of the wolf in Britain. When a wolf turned up somewhere towards the end of the time, in the tail end of the 1600s, beginning of the 1700s, a thing called the Posse Comitatus uh, was raised by the shepherd, uh, by the sheriff of a county, to rise up and destroy them. And the Posse Comitatus is a Latin term, and what it means is the power of the land. And the power of the land you see in its stark ignorance today when you go to the villages around here and you look at the gatherings that are out there to support the fox hunts, it's high time for a change because these people have not produced a rich and vibrant living environment. They have produced something that, that, that is very much the opposite of that and that view expressed is not one that I have, I'm afraid, any respect or time for, and it's not one that is borne out by, by any statistics that are even remotely credible. Does that make my position clear? I think so. I, I, I couldn't agree more, to be, to be perfectly yeah. honest with, with every point that you made in, in, in that. Um, there is a follow-up, um, which I was debating whether or not to, uh, to actually, you know, Give the time of for, for, for how tweeted is the comment? Yeah. Um, so this person is gonna. So this person uh, it comes to us from Liz Bald, and um, she says, "Well said, Loveday Miller. There are very solid, sensible reasons why the UK no longer has wild beavers, polecats. I think she means pine martens as well, lynx, and even wolves." I will just interject there. The reason why we don't have them is because we eradicated them out of misinformation and fear. But I'll continue for the population of the UK has massively increased since they became obsolete. Just want to interject again, eradicated. They weren't obsolete, still are not obsolete. Uh, so she continues, remember the UK was made the great nation we were on the back of wolves becoming extinct. Hence our ability in the Middle Ages to be the main producer of wool across Europe and the Middle East, as we could then keep large flocks of sheep safely, which they could not. Uncontrolled reintroduced wildlife has the potential to cause huge problems. We already have an instance in the problems with urban foxes now. There is no control mechanism that works for fox or human. As for rewilding, do those promoting it not realise it will revert to scrub and impenetrable gorse, not the pretty wildflower meadows some naively think will result? Can someone, too, explain, please, to a simple country person like me, when do the proponents of rewilding want to go back to? A hundred years? A thousand years? The Ice Age? We're all actually still in an Ice Age, um, but don't worry. Uh, when was the magical time in our history when every man, animal, insect and plant lived together in perfect harmony? I'd just like you to respond to that, please. <laughs> you can swear if you wish. I can say to something like that. I mean, it's a point of view. It's a point of view. And it's a point of view that is still fairly held by a percentage of people that occupy the rural landscape. But to say they are the majority of people is 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 
It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, what nature wants is complexity. So the scrub and the thorn that people jump up and down and, and moan about is the thorn is a, a, a degraded landscape trying desperately to heal itself. It's a scab on the wound of disaster. So it's it's the, th the thorn is the mother of the oak, is an old Dutch saying. And if you give the thorn long enough, then the thorn regrows the trees. But in the interim, the thorn provides nesting habitat for the stone chats and the wind chats. It, it, it provides pollen for the butterflies. The idea that some green monoculture of ryegrass or wheat has got, is, is anything other than death. Not even a vole can live through four cuts of silage. I mean, I lived in this, I bought this farm and had two years of the last of the old calm curlews coming in the spring to check to see if there was any nesting habitat available for them or a potential mate. They were at the end of 40-year-long lives and they are now dead. And they've been dead for 15 years. It, yeah. It's the tragedy of that way of thinking is it cannot see or realise or rationalise, frankly, its own witless stupidity. It's it's rewilding. Rewilding is a tiny percentage of, of the land use in Britain. God willing, it will increase with people and organisations and, and companies buying into landscapes and changing them quite utterly. It's great to know that, I mean, Savills were saying, and there was a Savills report in Scotland, that is that 52% of the large properties, the biggest states, you know, which were burnt for driven grouse, so there's no food there, um, you know, do, you know where birds of prey were 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 persecuted to the point where it's quite patently ridiculous that they're just disappearing from the skies. Where, you know, you, you just you know it was this this cartilage of ridiculous numbers of deer, no fish now. The fish are done. Is these estates are now being bought and turned into something else as a cause for great celebration? Yes, there may be a a green layered aristocracy, but these are people who actually are beginning to care at least. So. I think it's time for change. I think, you know, the removal of the farm subsidies for single with single farm payment, these direct payments to farmers for just existing is frankly an utterly good thing. To come back to the amount of land that potentially is being rewilded, Alistair Driver from Rewilding Britain will tell you maybe it's 50,000 um, um, hectares, 23 million acres of Britain are farm. So we've got to get get this in, in proportion. And those 23 million acres are only farmed with the worst landscapes ever, you know, beaten down by, by sheep to produce nothing on the basis of subsidies. And the day those subsidies go to people who own land for doing nothing, then it, 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 it is going to be a red letter day. More um, a reason for celebration than any human coronation. At the end of it all, it's time for radical change and it's time for people who wish to do, do good sincerely to be paid for doing that. And for those that wish to maintain whatever absurd status quo they have, then they should get nothing and, and, and see how they make their way in that. I have no sympathy for that point of view. No. Thank you. I, sorry, Gareth, go on. No, I was going to say it's, that's brilliant. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. Just it makes my heart sing when uh, to to think of that as that as a a far more progressive and and uh, foundational view than just we need to to just have this green field 
you know, and, and look at it, and then I can pretend it's the 1940s it's or something. The whole yeah. looking at the countryside, the moorlands and the and the field, the rolling hills of the fields, and people thinking that it's beautiful because it's green. Um and I I love green. Green's my favorite color, but that's not a beautiful environment. That is a managed and artificially created uh and I, patchwork. Commonly, it's a devastated environment. I mean, you go to Dartmoor that rises up behind me and you go into the sheep lands there. And mm. okay, there's a small birds and you might find a lizard missing its tail and a toad or two. But that's that's that that's what's left. If you go but you look at the Victorian, early Victorian books from the eighteen twenties and you pull out the wee maps and they'll show you where the cranes were, where the great bustards were, where the spoonbills were, where the white tailed eagles were, where the golden eagles were, where the pine martins were, where there were great swamps filled with, you know, Pond sedge and greater tussock sedge, which are going to be 120 years of, you know, old and, and host whole vibrant communities in its own right as a plant of ants and harvest mice and everything else. This has all been destroyed by these hardy Scottish sheep and hardy Scottish cattle to produce an environmental disaster. It's a it's 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 and you see it replicated again and again and again right the way through this island. There's no need for this to be like that. The wolves didn't die. The wolves died out because the the Roman Catholic Church started this this hate filled contagion to remove them from a landscape to save themselves as an organisation as much money as they could. They were a PLC. They, they didn't want to employ wolf hunters. They didn't want to maintain the traps because if somebody fell into a wolf trap in the time of Henry VIII and injured themselves, then you, were, you the person that was using it, was liable. So every mm. single thing could be done that to, 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 to deal with this animal, which involved expense, they decided to skip, neither consciously or unconsciously, uh, consciously or unconsciously, because Jesus was the good shepherd. He's saving the sheep. There's the lamb of God that's sacrosanct, even though yeah. now they're worthless. And what it meant was that, you know, you went into the pulpit, you told people that these were evil, um, you know, you, 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 you got, you persuaded the judiciary and the crown that if people brought in bits of them, they'd have their, their journey to heaven you know, straightened out in front of them. And if you were a minor criminal, you'd just sentence remitted. And what it did was that it started this flaying, burning, hideous death cult that 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 we then directly transmitted as a disease um, to 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 as in the form of thought to North America, to much of Western Europe, and to great country. Us you need to think about what empire really means to people that weren't white and Anglo-Saxon. But 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 to the Falkland Islands where the waters were killed, to 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 to, to Tasmania where they flayed the thylus because they just picked bad sheep country to begin with. The whole thing, frankly, is a disgusting comp of utter nonsense. And and to understand all this, you have to understand the breadth of history and silly statements like that understand nothing. It's ridiculous jingoistic crap. That's um, brilliant. I mean, we, it's shocking we... what religion has has wrought upon upon the wolf in particular, but uh, upon upon the global environment as well. Uh, it's interesting that you said you brought up the Roman Catholics because, as I believe, um, they had something to do with the beaver. If I remember, the didn't they say that yeah, the beavers they were, fish, were fish? Scaly because... tail fish. Yeah, and therefore you can eat them fermented fast. 
And the same way you can eat otters and seals and barnacle geese and all this sort of stuff. So when you start with religion and its most profoundest of ignorances, then don't expect to be anything other than more ignorant you were um, by the time you finish than you were at the beginning. um, Unless Gareth has something to say, the next question is mine. Do you have anything you want to say? What I was going to say is um, we've actually covered previously in in two uh, other episodes, uh, both the thylacine and the wara uh, as um, well animals that have unfortunately gone extinct thanks to mm-hmm. thanks to mankind's stupidity so it's always it's always nice to see that like I say that exact same un- unfortunate imperialistic mindset that we've infected the rest of the world with and destroyed entire uh, portions of wildlife with but uh, that was that was uh, just a minor thing i wanted to to add in there cuz not often is it it's is it linked i suppose a lot of the time in, in people's minds but uh directly yeah. directly and irretrievably linked links yeah. very- um well the next question it, yeah this is this is my question um it, so one of the things it's probably quite obvious one of the things that i admire about about you is your passion for the cause and that you you're not afraid to say it how it is to hell with whatever anyone thinks um a and that kind of get up and go attitude to conservation and rewilding really speaks to me um now conversely it seems to me especially in britain i find that there are far too few people who actually grasp just how integral to the british isles a potential restoration of our habitats is uh can you excuse me can you talk to us a bit about why it is so important to restore and, and rewild britain right now and why it's not just a case of we're a small island of, of, of agricultural land, and, and that's how we should remain. Um, why? So rewilding, I have no, no interest in the, in the, in the word, or the, the, whether it's a good word, bad word, whatever else. I, mm-hmm. The only I'm interested in is the cultivation of other life, and that's it. And and as But the rewilding part of it, in inverted commas, if you take it very simply, is taking land that has been used for agriculture and brought very low by the processes that have been applied to and through a program of restructuring be that whatever it may be bursting field drains to 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 allow water to flow over land creating pool complexes you know maybe releasing beavers if you can get a license to do so into an environment where they can fell trees and 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 re-wet the land and create again more complex pool mosaics still by 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 taking large piles of rocks back out into flatland which have been de-rocked by people and their pitiful children ever since uh, the early middle ages by putting large brush piles back out by restoring flower-rich meadows using yellow rattle by replanting trees or allowing scrub to reform what you're doing with every single sentient step you take is you are trying to restore the ability of those landscapes to to provide opportunity for other life and the risk with the rewilding part of that being the bit that takes out the green desert in the middle and relinks the green desert via these methodologies to the last little tiny bits of what are left because commonly around the edges of most land when you go to look at people's farms or estates you'll find a banking where there are harebells blooming or a tiny bit of wetland where there's a little bit of water mint. And that's where you'll see the last of the, you know, the common blues or 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 or, or an odd frog or two, whatever else. But it's it's an absolute 
it's 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 an existence of eternal poverty for these little creatures where there's little space for them and and little less and less generally by far for them to feed on and and unless we use this time and the people with money and will who are prepared to do it to relink these last tattered fragments of 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 it's not even a web there's no, it's strands blowing in the wind then there truly will be no future for 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 other life at all and in the end if there is no future for other life we we see things like the insect fall populations falling by 75% and and the soils getting to the stage where we're trying to farm silica with chemicals in the end this will come for us too it's absolutely inevitable we can't mm-hmm. as a species put the strains on this planet of consumption we place upon it and expect our tenure of this earth to be long. When you look in terms of, you know, of, of the dinosaurs and, and the 80s of millions and 180 and 80 million and 380 million years of tenure, these other life forms have had. And you look at how in a lifetime of one individual like David Attenborough, who's born in a time where 70 plus percent of the, the earth is covered by wildland or wilderness. And by the time that man's life comes to a close, it's nearing 20. You realise that the game is, is swiftly becoming an impossible one with complication after complication piling on it in the end we won't be able to sort so rewilding what does rewilding do it offers hope and the name's been pulled down by fools who 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 like the last of the of the white africaners before nelson mandela was released and a time where people don't remember are the idiots that were parading up and down high streets on horses and saying they were going to declare an Afrikaans free republic. You know, they, what they did was they held reenactments, they lagered their wagons and country fairs and shows, and they got the thickest people in society with guns to support them. And in the end, it all changed and went. And what you see from some of these arguments now is the same sort of scenario playing out. They're frightened to change. They're out of time. They don't know how to articulate a point of view that 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 that, that is nonsense dust, and 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 that's why they pick on things like rewilding and tell people it's terrible without even understanding what the potential of it is or a potential um, salvation that's there in this way of thinking as far as destitute and destroyed landscapes are concerned. Yeah. That's, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Really, <laughs> it's, it's as as. Yeah, no, I'm I'm blown away. Actually, it's it's um, is that good an answer? Uh, our next question's been sent in, uh, by Danny Kevin, uh, and he's asked, "Do beavers in the UK build elaborate, lavish dams like their American counterparts? Uh, and if no, what obstacles prevent them from uh, doing so here in the UK?" Beavers, Eurasian beavers and North American beavers build dam systems which are equally complex. The reason why there is some thinking or some thinking occurred 20 years ago that it was not the case was that a lot of the early research that people used as study papers to form a position, an understanding of the beaver was based on a time when Eurasian beavers were very rare and therefore they did not build extensive dams because there were very few of them. But both species we now know are capable of building in exactly the same way. There's no difference. 
Uh, just to jump off of that, just for, for our listeners, are there any key differences um, between the Eurasian and the American beaver? Perhaps the North American beaver is more fecund. Um, it's it's a, it's actually a well. This the problem is that our knowledge of North American beavers in Europe is not that well formed. So I, myself and some colleagues who've worked with beavers for a while would tell you that you know you're looking at a slimmer, lighter animal that physically we think we could reasonably tell apart from Eurasians. But mm. you've got to bear in mind animals that we know and we've dealt with in zoos and in Western Europe are very inbred uh, and and because we're never a very valuable zoo animal and, and they were just given to other zoos as pairs of brothers and sisters. So I'm not so sure just how different they actually are. I mean, we obviously have different chromosome numbers that are different physical differences. But when you go talk to the guys in Oregon and you show them the animals we have here, they will tell you that they think they, they look heavier and more robust, but that otherwise, colour-wise, they are not so different to the animals they know. So, okay. yes, there are there are differences, and there are skeletal differences, and there are, are physical differences, but, but they probably look more similar than we think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the other question we had uh, is from a member of the public, uh, not in our listenership, has asked uh, Jimmy. Oh, sorry, his name is uh, Jeremy Hickman. Uh, Hickman, sorry. Uh, who will pay for the damage caused? Another one of uh, these questions uh, caused when the above animals cause damage or become out of control. There's okay. A... Well, I'll, I'll answer that by giving you another question. Mm-hmm. The the farm subsidies that the people have received in this landscape come to three point. We're under. Uh, in the last years of, of our membership of the European Union, 3.3 billion. The, the cleanup bill is estimated by the Environment Agency for all the damage that they did, and that's topsoil loss, toxins into river courses, whatever else, came to 2.6 billion. Every single time uh, a town, a city, or a village floods because of the canalization of water courses, the, the you know, open arable land above it, the, the, the panning of, uh, of the soil to create a surface that is impermeable. The, you know, when, so when you have flash flooding, all this residue comes straight down in, into, into towns and settlements and does immense damage, costing tens of millions of pounds or billions of pounds in the case of you know, serious floods. Who pays for all that? We, the taxpayers, pay for it. We pay for the IDBs through our, our precepts on our houses and in areas of the landscape where the IDBs are maintained to enable farming operation to, to happen at all. We pay for the pumps. We pay for the flood walls. We pay for, for this infrastructure to be there near completely. And, and, and the cost of that is mind-boggling. In Bavaria, which is a state the size of Scotland, they have a compensation fund for people who have genuine issues with beavers in, in an intensively farmed arable landscape. And the landscapes we have in the west of England and in the other landscapes we have semi-natural environments with woodlands in the bottom, there's very little beaver that beavers are ever going to do, which is going to cause us much in the way of, of a commercial issue. But the fund in Bavaria, which is a state that's the size of Scotland, is about 600000 a year, and the state pays that. But when you look at the cost of, of the state paying for, for, for agricultural damage and game damage and all the other things um, that, that some parts of society inflict on everybody else, than, than anything a beaver does 
it is not going to even enter the small change chamber of the cash box. <laughs> Makes financial sense. Yeah, yeah, you brought up two points there that, that I really want to just ha ha kind of support and hammer home because it, it speaks to something that, that I talk about quite a bit. The, the first one is um, is the, the, the funds that are set aside for that kind of thing. Um, there are countries that the, the British public are adamant must support uh, populations of lions, populations of tigers and populations of wolves whilst we can't tolerate badgers. Um, and these countries, yeah, I've, I've had a little bit of experience with tiger conservation in Malaysia. Now, there are tiger range countries where there are funds set aside, compensation funds, um, for predation on stock or damage to, um, to, to the premises. And it's the same with wolves as well in, in certain wolf range, range areas. And on that, that kind of brings me to my second point. You mentioned about the comparison in countryside between, I think you said Bavaria and, and Scotland, I think. Um, and this brings me on to this other point that um, people think that because we're small um, and there's lots of people here, that we can't, we can't possibly house these, these animals, these species. Uh, but there is plenty of evidence that there are countries in Europe alone that are smaller or the same size as areas of, 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 of Britain and British countries and have much larger population density of people. And yet they are living alongside wolves perfectly happy. They're living alongside beavers perfectly happy. It just seems to be a bit of a British attitude towards wildlife. It's ignorant. It's ignorant because we have done all these creatures to death so long ago to have complete purlieu of the landscape that we have no longer any knowledge that's based on reality of what they are. We've 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 that has gone for centuries. But equally it had gone for centuries in places like Holland and Denmark and mm. and uh, you know in most of these countries wolves would have gone for a century and a half. And now they're returning. And mm -hmm. what's happening is Yes, you've still got the burners and the haters and the people that cut off heads and leave them in the steps of the municipal government in Asturias to show yes. them that these are going to be here. But when you go and ask the bulk of people in society, the people who pay their taxes, who then, um, and, 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 and from whose taxes are drawn the landscape subsidies, um, they will tell you they want there to be space for nature. And their voice is the voice that needs to rise and crescendo. There are many more of them. They are people who are having children who are terribly worried about the fate of the earth that, 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 that these kids are going to be left with. We have done so much damage and so much harm. And the generations that are coming now are either going to have to, well, you can't ignore the problems. The problems are huge. By the time, you know, your own government is telling you that you can't swim in the rivers because the toxic the sea is dangerous. You know, once again, you know, we, we are looking at an environment that we've lost the ability uh, without significant effort and significant expenditure to heal. And it's because, you know, you go to places like the River Y and the chicken boys will tell you that there's our buffer strip. It's agreed with the Environment Agency. They, they look, we've got our buffer strip. It's five metres and we pour all this filth on to five metres and when I wonder why when it rains 
the river's running the colour of moss or coffee and it smells of chicken shit or pig shit or cow shit. Water doesn't look like that. Water's gin clear. Do you know what gin looks like in a glass? You can see through it from one side to the other. That's mm. the way it should be. And it should be full of fish and bivalves and lampreys. It should be teeming with life. And it was until relatively recently. So this idea that the you know we're going to have to compensate for what an animal but that there's nothing but good that slows the flow that helps prevent the floods that purifies water that retains the toxic silts there unfortunately there is nothing much more you can say to some of these people other than it's time to either read and understand or go <laughs> yeah very true um, and that uh, brings us to our last question. Uh, I'm selfishly, very unfortunately, because um, I could uh, I could certainly keep asking uh, questions and listening to your answers as long as possible. Um, but what, one thing we like to do at the end of all of our interviews um, is to point our listeners to where they can find all of our guests, uh, all of our guest content, and and your good stuff. Um, so I'm just wondering, where can people find you and your efforts online? And also, what's next for you? You did briefly, I was going to bring this up, um, but you briefly mentioned it yourself, that there is a British wolf book on its way. So um, I've done two books. The, the Bring Back the Beaver book is a funny story of the goodies, the baddies, the sad times, the, the happy times on, on the road to restore the beaver to Britain. It is not a particularly book about beavers. It's a book mm -hmm. about people and things that happened. The Birds, Beasts and Bedlam is an expansion of that to a range of other species. In the spring of next year, um, I'll, I'll hopefully publish a book called The Hunt for the Shadow Wolf, which will be a delve back in time to look at the history of, of the wolf in Britain, which is much more complicated and much more, much more intricate than, than I ever thought it would be. There never was a last final battle on a mountaintop. That's not the way it ended. And 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 we had a good hand in in still in 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 stirring the pot of confusion um, that brought um, this inexplicability to 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 whatever conclusion it came to, I'll not spoil the surprises. No, so, no, no spoilers. There is those that book will come out in the in the beginning of next year. Um I haven't had a lot of time for writing very much else. Actually, in the last year or two, I've just been really busy because we're forming our own little trust here, which will be called the Keep It Wild Trust. Um, we will be launching a membership um, scheme shortly. We have a conference um, or a wildlife festival with Charlie Burrell, Jake Vines, um, Guy Shrubsoul, um, Sir John Lister Kay, um, Mary Colwell, all speaking from the 28th to the um, 30th of um July. If you just look at our Coombs Head Rewilding website, you can find details of the conference there. But it is a stellar lineup of speakers. Leo Lynn, um, who is uh, the most amazing guy who has um, persuaded for the, the restoration of things like bi European bison in the Netherlands and, and is supporting things like the reintroduction of wildcats there and will be speaking as well. So it should be a really good event. So, so if you just basically watch the the Coombs Head website, there there will be bits of information up there as and when they become available. And as I say, the Wolf Book will be out in the spring. Amazing. Hmm. Well, it's been an absolute 
honor and privilege to to listen to what you've got to say um yeah, for, for my part thank you very very much for, for coming on yeah no problem been, absolute pleasure yeah it's been absolutely fantastic it's it's nice to hear someone with uh with such passion for for everything conservation rewilding um i don't know i don't know how uh familiar you might be with um another conservationist uh from australia it, just sort of spurred my mind as you were talking about uh, the sort of the conservation aspects of things. He was uh, Dr. John Wamsley. He was a big, uh, passionate person for rewilding areas in Australia with um, earth sanctuaries. Mm. Um, it, it seems that you, you've both got that same sort of uh, amazing drive to, to push, to, to get it done, basically. You only have one life, and it's very bloody short. Indeed. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much indeed for speaking to me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank yeah. you. Pleasures thank you so pleasures much. All ours. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, Gareth, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and just like that, he was gone. <laughs> uh, an absolutely amazing um, interview. Uh, one of our longest interviews. No, definitely the longest interview. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely stunning. Absolutely brilliant. Um yeah, I uh, don't don't know really what to say. I mean, no, you know, there's not much, not much, not much to say on on that. Um, I think I think it's I think his uh I think his time with us speaks for itself. Yeah, well, uh, I would say definitely go out and check out uh, those books, um, and especially the the Wolf Woman that comes out. I, I'm um, looking also, that yeah. You can, like, say so you can. You can find him. I think uh, rewilding Coombs Head. Uh, they're on Facebook. I think we've, we've. I've certainly reshared some of their stuff in the past. Um, but um, yeah, well, let's let's go from our interview uh, and head on into our uh, emails. Wicked. Bing. You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right. Well, we are into our emails for this week. Uh, and we're going to kick things off with our question that we posed to you, our listeners, last week, uh, which was, what is your favourite bird that visits your garden? We had some responses from this. Uh, sadly, only one of them is from outside the UK, I think. But we'll save the uh, the most exotic for last. Catherine Ames has put, I've seen gold crests in the tree branches that overhang our garden. Also have a soft spot for the blackbird uh, as he is identifiable. His name is Rab. Fair enough. Um, I don't think I've ever named the blackbird that we have in our garden. Uh, Jen Babs has put, gosh, well, I love the, squib uh, the squabbles of the sparrows and the goldfinches. Love our great spot uh, spotted woodpecker. Uh, and it's a toss up between the acrobatic nuthatch and the bullfinches. I don't know. Please don't make me choose. <laughs> I mean, should we? Should we force her to choose? Choose. You will choose. Yeah. I personally, I quite like nut hatches. Um, bullfinches are a very nice looking bird as well. Yeah, I think I might have the same issue with trying to choose which one out of those. Uh, Sarah Curtis has put Betty and Bertie and their two babies, uh, they're blackbirds. Uh, and la last but least, uh, Louisa O'Leary has put Northern Flicker uh, and its kids. Uh, and I had no idea what a Northern Flicker was uh, and had to go and look it up. And it's a stunning looking bird. Um, Certainly, well, quite bizarre, obviously, to uh, to the likes of us here in the UK. But um, for a North American bird, that is still pretty stunning anyway. 
It looks like the love child of a cheetah and a woodpecker. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really really pretty, and I'd highly recommend if you've never seen one, um, go and go and Google it and have a have a look, see what it looks like. Um, so our question for you guys uh, this week, our beloved listeners, uh, is not so much um, linked to our fantastic guests that we've had uh, or any other sort of serious question. We thought we'd go completely left field um, and do what is your favorite or tell us your favorite animal based pun or joke. Um, and we thought we'd have a bit of fun with that. And yeah. we have both gone and picked two animal jokes uh, each to uh, to use. Aaron, do you want to start us off with your first one, and then I'll do one, and then we'll go vice versa. You you're gonna have to get a third because I got three. Oh, you got three. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll come I'll... up with a third. Thank you, you go first, you. and I'll. Okay, uh... so my first one, Gareth's already heard this one is uh, Jurassic Times called for Jurassic Measures. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> my first, my one that I've got is what do you call two octopuses that look exactly the same? Identical. <laughs> uh, my second one is, don't call us, we'll call you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Why do cows have hooves instead of feet? Why? Because they lack toes. <laughs> Your first one was better. <laughs> And my third one is, um, uh, and now we'll take a minute to thank our sponsors. Of course, we don't have any sponsors. <laughs> okay, my final one for you then is, what do you call a dinosaur that never gives up? A try and try and try a ceratops. <laughs> Not bad. So if you reckon you can do better, um, which is almost certainly true, uh, send us in your um, your animal-based puns or jokes uh, on our Facebook page, uh, which you can always find all of the different things that we're putting up there. Yep. And that brings us nicely to our emails. Um, if you want to get in contact with us uh, via email, you can do so by sending us an email to the cupboard at gmail.com. Uh, like some of the uh, the fantastic listeners have uh, in well in the past and in the future, um, but uh, Aaron, we've got Hopefully. an email. Uh, Hopefully, I in the future. Uh, well, no, no, this one was an interaction with us on Twitter, if I remember ah. right, um, and it comes to us from uh, Jennifer Greenhull, um, who sends in a lot to us. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah. and she says it's a it's it's more feedback than anything else. Uh, but we're, always, we're, we're, uh, always worth having. It's always worth having and, and, and spark a conversation and stuff. Like that. So she says, oh my, just catching this week's episode and you briefly mentioned a natural history podcast uh, road trip. Um, it could be like those we see in the new scientists, but cheaper. <laughs> it would have to be cheap. Uh, It'd always be cheaper be with the, us. Yeah. <laughs> you guys could be the trip leaders. We can count. I can drive a minibus. Let's do it. Um, and firstly, thank you for the um, thank you for the message and for the because it's it's an encouraging message uh, that there are listeners out there that would like to. But um, we're not really like we when we were talking about um, doing a road trip. We were with 
kind of massively serious. <laughs> lightheartedly talking about places where we might go to either do some like like you know do some uh some some videos, some content for the for the podcast and hopefully eventually the YouTube channel. And it's it, it just to be quite honest, we we we're not really in a position to be taking tours and to, to be honest, you could probably get better tour operators anyway. So, uh, but thank you anyway for the um for the for the feedback and and that we really do appreciate. It. And, and like I say, it, just knowing that people want to hang out with us is uh, is very encouraging. So, cheers. Right. Well, that was uh, a fantastic uh, message there. So that one came in through Twitter, uh, which is another way you can get in contact with us. So we do have our Twitter, our Facebook, uh, Instagram, and of course uh, our fantastic emails. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, uh, like many of the, the people past and present have. Um, and it just brings me to say, uh, well, if you've liked what you've heard, um, remember you can leave a review. Uh, you can like, subscribe. Um, you can pull a bell, write a review, leave a star, all those different things. They all really help us out uh, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and that just leaves me uh, to say a big thank you uh, to Derek Gow for coming on. Um, that's been a fantastic interview with him. Um, Aaron, do you want to say anything on the, on that note? Uh, no, just say, just again, just to reiterate the fantastic interview. Uh, I've been looking forward to that one for uh, a long time. Actually, Derek, I, I don't think I mentioned it in the interview, but Drew was the one that nominated uh, Derek's name when we were going through, uh, through, potential interviewee candidates um for the podcast and that was as i say it was right near the beginning um mm. we're in season three now and it's just really cool we get that that one uh that one in, in the bag because we've been looking forward to that one yeah yeah hmm. uh, and obviously a big thank you to you aaron as well you're very welcome it's been fun. Good episode. It has. Yeah. Um, and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. So, Gareth. Yes. Did you gnaw all the trees? Uh, I not only gnawed them, I uh, I chewed them. I, uh, I knocked them down. You knocked wood, did you? Oh my god. <laughs> what did it cost you? <laughs> well, my dignity by the sounds of it. <laughs> 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 <laughs>